Hey, New Life Church, Bronson Duke here. Thanks for listening in. The heart of our church is that you would know Jesus, that you would walk with Jesus, and you would learn how to live like he lived. We hope that this message equips you and empowers you on your journey walking with Jesus. All right, all right. Good morning, everyone. Come on, stand. Hey, you know how we play. Up, down, up, down, baby. Let's go. Getting y'all some exercise. Good morning, everybody. We're going to read uh, the word during this portion. Um, so we're going to jump right in from verse 10 of chapter 3 and read all the way through chapter 4 of Jonah. Here we go. Verse 10 says, When God saw what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction he had threatened. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That's why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You're eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted was not going to happen. The Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry about this? Then Jonah went out to the east side of the city and made a shelter to sit under as he waited to see what would happen to the city. The Lord God arranged for a leafy plant to grow there, and soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun. This eased his discomfort, and Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But God also arranged for a worm. The next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant so that it withered away. And as the sun grew hot, God arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. The sun beat down on him on his head until he grew faint and wished to die. Death is certainly better than living like this, he exclaimed. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Yes, Jonah retorted, even angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, you feel sorry about the plant though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and it died quickly. And this is the last one. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? This is God's word. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you speak to us through it. And Holy Spirit, we just ask that you'd come. Come Holy Spirit. Speak to us right now. Lead us in the truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody says? Amen. Amen. Hey, you can have a seat. You made it. <laughs> Who thinks they parked the furthest away? Anybody? Come on. Anybody? Yeah, I saw a hand. I see that hand. That's good. Uh, okay, well, hey, we're, we're finishing out our series on the book of Jonah this weekend. Uh, we've done four weeks. We've gone through four chapters. This is the last week. Uh, we're closing up here, and it's funny, as we were listening to it then, it occurred to me why usually the children's stories end with, like Jonah was spat out on the land, he went and preached, and everybody was happy, because it's like, how do you explain the complexities of like, I'm so angry at you, God, just kill me, I want to die, you know, all that stuff's difficult to explain to children, right? Well, what we're going to look at this morning is what God is speaking to Jonah, what God's more importantly doing in Jonah's heart and what it can mean for us. So, week one, Jonah hears from God, and what does he do? He what? 
He runs away, all right? He, it, just to review, uh, the Ninevites are a brutal, blood-curdling people. Uh, some academics call them a terrorist state, okay? So again, I think a lot of times we, we give Jonah some flack when we should give him some grace. <laughs> it's like, hey, I want you to go into Al-Qaeda territory and uh, tell them that judgment's coming. Uh, how many of us are like, ooh, pick me, right? So Jonah runs. Uh, he gets on a boat, a huge storm hits the boat. The sailors are like, you know, who in here's, you know, caused this problem? Jonah owns up to it. He gets thrown into the water, and uh, he, he, he responds to God. That's what we see, is he goes down to the sea. He gets swallowed by a fish. He gets thrown up by the fish, and God finally gets his reluctant yes, right? All right, so last week, uh, he goes to Nineveh. He preaches to Nineveh, and the Ninevites repent. Um, you know, there's some themes that we hit last week that are important, and I think that they're really helpful um, when it comes to the area of repentance, because it's interesting, if you go back and you look, the Ninevites are the only characters in this entire story who don't call, call God by his personal name. So they repent, but they never worship, right? Power is found, not just in repentance, but repentance that moves us to worship, Amen. So this week, we're gonna look at Jonah's response. He has gotta be the only preacher in the history of the world that had like, uh, you know, filled altars who was mad about it, all right? So he, he, is, he is great success, uh, but we, here we find him and he's upset. Okay, so before we dig in, give you a thesis, and we're gonna jump into it. Thesis is this, is that God and Jonah have competing visions of the good. They have what? Competing visions of the good. This is what we're going to see in this, okay? Uh, sermon title is Competing Visions of the Good and Recommended Reading. I've been recommending this through the whole series is a book called The Prodigal Prophet by Tim Keller. So if you're a reader, you want to study along on your own, that's one you can check out. Um, I wonder if you've ever heard anybody say any of these statements. You just got to live and let live. Has anybody ever said that before? You just got to live and let live. Sounds good. You do you, boo-boo, right? Do, do what's right for you. How, how about this? What, what right do I have to tell, to tell someone what is right or wrong? I wonder if you've ever said that or you've ever thought that. Whether we recognize it or not, these three statements are actually deeply ingrained worldviews in our culture. I believe that we're in a cultural moment where we find ourselves like Jonah, we find ourselves in disagreement with God about what's right and wrong. But I believe that our anger, here's what we're gonna see, is the inverse of Jonah's anger. Uh, I have a friend who was planning a church years ago in Canada, and he was planning the church in an area that was um, an indigenous people's area. So he was planning a church among some indigenous peoples in Canada. And so within this group, they actually had access to a lot of funds, but they had a ton of like societal structural issues. Um, and then on top of that, they had incredibly low faith in Jesus. And so this is a great place to plant a church, amen? So there's a lot of mercy ministry to do. There's a lot of evangelism ministry to do. Let's go. So he's meeting with some wealthy people in his church, and uh, there were two couples from the church and him and his wife, and they're telling him about the mission. They're telling him about the mercy ministry that they're going to do to go in and to help people who are hurting, uh, help kids who are struggling with illiteracy, help you know, dealing with some of these structural issues. And at the same time, they had great opportunity to share the faith. And so as they're going, they can tell, like, one of the ladies is, is not enjoying the conversation. You're, you ever telling somebody about something, you can tell it's not going well, but you don't know why? Uh, so this is the situation that they were in, and finally this lady just erupts 
And she goes, these people don't need you. They don't need your help. You, with your colonizing, you are a part of the problem. They don't need saving. Now notice, this is a woman from their church who is saying these things. That these people who have incredibly low rates of faith don't need saving. What? This lady berates them so much, drives his wife to tears. One of the most brutal ministry moments that they said that they've ever had. Isn't the whole point of this church thing that we're doing to worship God and to invite other people into it? So what is going on here? There is a clash that is not theological, but it's ideological that's happening in this conversation. There's a clash between visions of moral goodness. To one person, good is evangelism, sharing the gospel to share the truth. To the other person, their vision of good is to live and let live, to let them live their truth. To her, to this lady, to evangelize is actually judgmental, it's arrogant, and it's an invasion. It's taking private religion and it's forcing it on someone else which is the cardinal sin of modern secularism. According to that vision of good, leaving these people alone and letting them live how they see fit is true kindness and true mercy, even if it means they never come to know Jesus. Here's the truth. We're increasingly seeing people who believe and think this way. So here's the question. What's happening within our culture? We're in the process of undergoing a massive shift from a predominantly Christian affiliation within the country to something that's called post-Christianity. We're moving from being a predominantly Christian nation to a post-Christian nation. Now, I have to be clear for those history buffs. Most of our founding fathers were more deists than Jesus followers, okay? So here's what I'm not trying to say. I'm not trying to say like, hey, you know, this is just the perfect Christian nation and we've gotta get back to our roots. What, What I'm saying is, is that what's happening is less and less people in our country would identify as Christians. Could we agree with that? Our worldview as a result, as a country, is rapidly changing. We, went under, we underwent, uh, some, sociologi- some socio- sociologists would say that we underwent about seven years of cultural change in one year due to the pandemic. Mark Sayers describes the cultural shift this way. He says, post-Christianity is not pre-Christianity. Rather, post-Christianity attempts to move beyond Christianity while simultaneously feasting upon its fruit. Post-Christian culture attempts to retain the solace of faith while gutting it of the costs, the commitments, and the restraints that the gospel places upon the individual will. Post-Christianity intuitively yearns for the justice and shalom that's peace of the kingdom of God whilst defending the reign of the individual will. Post-Christianity is Christianity emptied of its content. This is our cultural climate, is it not? Does this not ring true? Sayers goes on to say that we've been so distracted 
by left-wing and right-wing pol political arguments that we failed to see the ideological wolf in sheep's clothing slip through the door, what we would call secularism. So what does this have to do with the book of Jonah? Point number one, God and Jonah have competing visions of the good. And what I want to submit to us is that we too as a culture have competing visions of the good. Jonah 4 says, this chance of plans greatly upset Jonah and he became very angry. Jonah is the angry prophet, is he not? So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That's why I ran away. So here we have Jonah and he's spitting mad, okay? This word angry, it actually, in the Hebrew, it means burning. Like he is in a burning rage with God. Why is he angry? Because God's actions of mercy clash with Jonah's culturally informed vision of good. Jonah wanted judgment for his enemies, right? We've well established this. He wanted no chance of mercy for evil people. So why is he so angry? It's twofold. One, think about this as a prophet. You come in and you make a prediction that doesn't come true. How does that make you look? Right? So he's come in, he's made this prediction. He, I, this is me conjecturing. I think he thinks he's going to look stupid. I think he's upset because he's like, I said this is going to happen. Now it's not going to happen. God, you look good, and I look stupid. Right? Number two, he really wanted this thing to happen. He wanted Nineveh destroyed. Okay. Here's a question. Have you ever had competing vision of what's right and wrong with your boss before? Has anybody ever had this? Like they just keep getting on to you about something that does not make sense. Like you have this competing vision, right? Maybe it's being on time. Where, where are my 10 minutes early is on time people? You can show hands. Okay, 10 minutes early is on time. Where are my on time is on time people at? All right, God's people, that's good. Where am I, now you gotta be honest, where are my five minutes late is on time people at? All right, look around the room, we got people to pray for, okay? A good boss and a good leader is thinking about the overarching health of the organization under their care, right? Now the employee typically, let's be honest, is thinking about their own performance and they're thinking about their own success, right? Why does he care if I'm five minutes late? Here's what I've learned. As a boss or a leader, you have to set the line, and if you don't, it's chaos. So if somebody's consistently five minutes late, it makes it difficult to set schedules, right? It makes it difficult to set meetings, and everybody else is like, why am I on time if they're not on time? And there's a trickle-down effect. Now, I'm not just picking on the five minutes late people. We love you. We all have our stuff, right? I'm late from time to time, all right? <laughs> Here's the truth. A good God is thinking about the overarching health of humanity. So he doesn't lay down edicts because he's judgmental or because he's angry. Quite the opposite. Look at what Jonah said. I knew what? That you were loving. I knew you eagerly desired to show mercy. But God in his love must set limits of right and wrong. Here's the truth. We have to humbly resign ourselves to listen to our bosses if we're gonna be effective employees, right? 
Often our vision of the situation, if we're under a good boss, when there's conflict, a lot of times I found my vision is actually too small. I don't have the whole picture. And I have to trust my boss and I have to obey. Here's the truth. We have to humbly resign ourselves to God's vision for humanity if we're going to be effective Jesus followers. Amen? Often our vision for life and goodness is too small. Jonah desired that God show judgment and was furious that he might show mercy. In our culture, I've found that we eagerly desire that God show mercy and we're furious at the thought that there might be judgment. To use New Testament terminology, Jonah wanted all truth and no grace. Here's what I believe for us as modern people, and it's problematic. We want all grace, but no truth. Here's the big issue. If there is no truth, there can be no grace. If there is no judgment, there's no need for mercy. When you receive grace and offer grace with no repentance, what you're left with is a hollow mercy with no power. It seems like grace, it seems like loving, like love, but it has no substance to bring about change. And here's what I believe, and if you look at our world, I, I believe that you'll find we need change. Here's what we see in the Gospels. I actually went back this past week and I was reading through it. So I was chewing on this and wrestling with this. And I'm like, what's the beginning of Jesus' message? Matthew 4, 17. It's the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Verse 17. It says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach. And what did he preach? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Here's the reality. To receive healing, you must admit you're sick. To receive mercy, you must understand that certain things in your life are deserving of judgment. And what's happened within the modern church is we've responded to generations of people that beat people to death with the Bible over their sin instead of reaching down to pick people up. And so we became afraid to call sin sin. We became afraid to engage in conversations. But the problem is, if we do that, we end up with a Christianity that is void of power and is actually the opposite of the message that Jesus preached. I want to give you this, and we're going to move on to the next thing. All this is just kind of a framework and a setup for going into this. There's seven tenets of secularism uh, Mark Sayers lays out in his book. Um, I want you to listen to this and just see if this rings true for you and what you've experienced in our society, and maybe you might find that you believe some of these things. Number one, the highest good is individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression. Number two, traditions, religions, received wisdom, regulations, and social ties that restrict individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression must be reshaped, deconstructed, or destroyed. Number three, the world will inevitably improve as the scope of individual freedom grows. Technology, and particularly the internet, will motor this progression towards utopia. Stick with me, because I know I'm reading a lot. Number four, the primary social ethic is tolerance of everyone's self-defined quest for individual freedom and self-expression. Any deviation from this ethic of tolerance is dangerous and must not be tolerated. 
Therefore, social justice is less about economic and class inequity and more about issues of equality relating to, relating to individual identity, self-expression, and personal autonomy. Okay, now here's the linchpin of all of this. Number five, humans are inherently good. Number six, large-scale structures and institutions are suspicious at best and evil at worst, and forms of external authority are rejected and personal authenticity is lauded. Okay, I read through all that. It's a ton of stuff. Why is it important? Because it totally flies in the face of the narrative of the scripture. The entirety of the Bible is built upon the story of God who created in love, he created a utopia for humans and God to live in together. And human beings sinned and fell short of God's glory. And from that moment forward, God put a plan in place to rescue man from sin. The issue is, if we believe that there's no need for repentance, there's no ability for us to reconnect with God. And so what we have right now, what's happening it, we have this clash, this, this competing vision of good between the narrative of the library of scripture and the narrative of our post-Christian secular culture. And so what I, what I wanna ask you is this. Has your vision for truth been narrowed down to what our culture would say is true, what our culture would say is loving? And the invitation is to lift our eyes and to look up and say, what does God, if we believe that God is God, if we believe that God is created, what does he say is good and loving and gracious? What is his plan? Amen? So question just for personal reflection. Where might you have a competing vision of good to God's that is not too big, but is actually too small? That's not liberating, but actually is enslaving that doesn't help us find freedom, that, but actually keeps us enslaved to sin. I wanna invite you to examine that vision. Again, like I said, this is the inverse. For us, we want mercy. Jonah wanted judgment, right? So here's the question. I believe it applies and it cuts both ways. What was Jonah's motivation for preaching? Here's what I believe. Jonah's motivation for basically everything he does in the text is selfish, right? Basically everything he does. He only went and preached to the Ninevites because he got swallowed by a dang whale, right? It's like there's nothing. He does basically everything wrong. Jonah's motivation for mission is doing what is good for Jonah. Judgment against enemies, good. Restoration of enemies, bad. He's angry and he's totally unwilling to really take a look at God's point of view. This is what we see here at the end. This is such a funny, strange ending, but I, I hope I can bring some light to it. Here's what we're gonna see. He used a big fish to show Jonah's need for mercy, and he'll use a small plant to show Jonah his utter and complete selfishness. Okay, I'm gonna read through this one more time. Throw this up there, Jonah 4, 4 through 8. See what sticks out to you. The Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Now, it's interesting, in the Hebrew, this is maybe better translated. Is it doing any good for you to be so angry? All right? Then Jonah went out to the east side of the city and made a shelter to sit under as he waited to see what would happen to the city. 
the scene is just so funny to me. <laughs> like he goes through and he's grumpy. He's giving the message. He sees people repenting. He's grumpy. So he goes out and he sits on a hill by himself, sets up a shelter, and he's just watching to see what will happen, right? And Lord God arranged for a leafy plant to grow there, and soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head. This is the first time we see, we see Jonah happy in the entire book, all right? He's got some shade. He's like, all right, now we're, we're cooking with peanut oil here. He's like, this is what I'm looking for. This, this eased his discomfort, and he was very grateful for the plant. But God arranged for a worm the next morning. At dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant, so it withered away. And the sun grew hot, and God arranged for scorching wind to blow on Jonah. <laughs> I just imagine Jonah's like laying on the ground. He's like, and he says it. He's like, death is certainly better than living like this. Just kill me. Everything in this story with Jonah is about Jonah. So here's the question. How can God get him to wake up and to start to see God's heart? All throughout the book, God uses discomfort to try to speak to Jonah, right? And watch what happens. Watch what bubbles out of Jonah when he's hit with discomfort. Notice, it's not looking to God. He just gets mad, okay? So what happens? He gets frustrated, he starts complaining, and he rejects God's ways all throughout the book, right? No matter all the miracles that have happened to Jonah, he's still complaining. He, saved, he gets saved from a storm, he's complaining. He gets saved from the sailors, he's complaining. He gets saved from a great fish, he's complaining. You'd think he'd be the most thankful person in the world. I think if Jonah had seen Jesus walk on water, he would have been like, that, that loser can't even swim. Like, that, that's the kind of guy Jonah is, all right? I wonder if you know anybody like that that just complains all the time. Number two, he's angry towards God. Three times in the chapter it talks about his anger. He's full of anger. Now, Jonah actually does the right thing with his anger. He takes it to God. He lets, I love this. All throughout the Bible you'll see the prophets are incredibly honest with God about how they feel. Here's the issue, though. When we use our anger to diagnose problems with others, instead of letting God diagnose problems with us, it actually leads us to self-pity. Peterson said this, he said, anger is, the most, is most useful as a diagnostic tool. Anger is our sixth sense for sniffing out wrong in the neighborhood. Diagnostically, it's virtually infallible and we learn to trust it. Anger is infused by a moral, spiritual intensity that carries conviction. When, we anger, when we're angry, we know we're onto something that matters, that really counts. Now look at this. When God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Jonah shot back, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. What anger fails to do, though, is to tell us whether the wrong is outside of us or inside of us. When we track the anger carefully, we often find it leads us to a wrong within us. Wrong information inadequate understanding, and an underdeveloped heart. Jonah does not use his anger to lead him towards God's heart, but he actually drives that anger deeply, deeper inward and it leads him to self-pity. You know, I have watched this happen to many of my friends, and this has happened to me many times. When we reject God's word, when we reject God's leading, when we re reject the gentle leading of the Holy Spirit or we reject the leading and the counsel of other Christians, we end up landing in self-pity. Notice 
Jonah's hyper-focused on his own circumstances, his own feelings, his own view of things, his own reputation, and he's boiling. And since he won't yield to God, that self-pity drives him into depression. Now, there's different types of depression. There's clinical depression, right? But then there's also circumstantial depression. And what circumstantial depression often is, is anger turned inwards. Jonah cannot change the circumstance, right? He's tried. (laughs) He did everything he could do. I wonder if you've ever found yourself there. You've done everything you can do to try to change something or try to make something work. And if you stay in that, and if you don't look for God's perspective, what's going to end up happening is that anger is going to turn into self-pity, and that's going to drive down into your soul, and it's going to lead you into a deep, deep, depression, and it ends up leaving you isolated. Solitude can lead to depth. It can lead to time with God, but isolation ends up leaving us vulnerable. Here we find Jonah. He's out on his own. He's depressed, and he's isolated. And where does this go? What's the logical end of all of this? He ends up suicidal, right? Just kill me. I want to die. Take me now. There's murder in his heart. And since he can't take it out on others, he takes it out on himself. Now notice this. Here's what I want you to see in this this path. Jonah is honest, but he's not humble. He's honest about where he's at, but he's not humble enough to accept leading and to accept grace. He doesn't say, God, I don't like what's happening, but change my heart. He's full of pride. So let's get practical. We all have things we know God does want us to do and God doesn't want us to do. And I'd be willing to bet that a few things just jump to mind very clearly for you. Maybe one specific thing. Maybe vision, something you feel like God's asking you to do, to go and share with somebody. Or it could be a sin struggle. Here's my question. What's your heart posture towards God in that thing? Often, the thing that you're most closed off to God about is actually the area where you're the most defensive. You won't let anybody in on it. If somebody speaks to it, they're attacking you. If somebody tries to help you through it, they're judging you. And and here's what I believe. If we continue down that path, it leads us into anger and self-pity, potentially depression, and even further, it could drive you into suicidal thoughts. But there is another option. And we're not sure what Jonah does, but here's what God's offering him. God's offering to shift his perspective, to give give him a grander view of things, and to invite him into his gracious gospel (coughs) mission. Number three. So number one, God and Jonah have competing visions of the good. Number two, Jonah's motivation is selfishness. Number three, God's motivation is is love for his creation. 
very end of the book. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Yes, Jonah retorted, even angry enough to die. The Lord said, you feel sorry for the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and it died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? Here's what we have to see when it comes to gospel preaching and gospel living. God's primary motivation is love for his creation. Why this strange illustration? God is using Jonah's selfish bent to lead him towards the truth. God knows that Jonah primarily cares about himself. (laughs) So what does he do? He gives him extreme comfort, and then he takes it away. And he shows Jonah, you care more about a plant than you care about people. Here's what God closes with. He's saying, I'm seeing things in a way that you can't see things. You're seeing things from the ground. I'm seeing things from 30,000 square feet. Not square feet, feet high. I'm thinking about houses. Mansions. What does God see? This is the question we have to ask ourselves. When God looks at the planet, when God looks at our world, God sees people that he created and that he loved and he's desperate to be in relationship with. Not because God's desire, primary desire is control, but God's primary desire is life. God wants to be in relationship with you because it's the best thing for you. God doesn't want to come in and change you because he hates you. God wants to come in and bring change because he loves. Aren't you so glad we have a greater prophet than Jonah? (laughs) I'm so glad Jonah is not our primary voice. Jonah ran from the call because it had a cost. But the greater Jonah, Jesus, said yes to the call even when it meant a cross. Because of Jonah's disobedience, he was cast into the sea to save sailors who in his sin he put at risk. But Jesus, despite his obedience and his sinlessness, was cast into the sea of God's wrath to save us. Jonah wept that sinners be saved. Jesus wept that the lost and the dead be raised to life. Jonah climbed on a hill in anger and depression, and Jesus climbed Calvary and considered it pure joy to die in our place. Listen, we don't know what Jonah does. The text doesn't actually tell us. Anytime the Bible leaves things open-ended like this, it's a narrative tool. It's leaving it open-ended for us to ask the question, do we have God's heart? And so here's my question for you. When it comes to God's vision of goodness, is there anywhere in your life, in the life of our world, where God's asking you to reassess? Are there places where you're saying, mercy, mercy, and God's saying, no, first, 
you, you have to see that there's sin and there's death in that area in your personal life, in the life of others. Secondly, I want to ask you a question. In your relationship with God, what is your primary motivation? Is it self? Is it what God can do for you? When it comes to ministry and sharing your faith, are you willing to take a risk? Are you willing to, re- to, to face rejection, to, sell, to tell someone the gospel and that God loves them? Or are you stuck in that selfish place where it's all about you and you're a stagnant well where there's no water flowing through you? And lastly, do you have God's lens on the world? When you look at the brokenness of the world, listen, I know there's two perspectives here. Some of you are very angry about the state of our world. And that anger is actually keeping you from loving people. Some of you are so in love with the systems and the ways of our world that you're not angered by it. And you're not motivated to share. You're not motivated to mission. The question we have to ask ourselves is who are we going to be? Are we going to be people who hold truth and grace in tension like Jesus? Or are we gonna be people who go about things in our own way? Amen? This is the story, this is the narrative. This is a book about God, but it's a book to God's people. Ask these few questions and we're gonna go into a time of response. Will you share God's message of truth and grace? Are there any areas in your own selfishness that you've been unwilling to tell somebody the truth, even though the way that they're living is killing them? I invite you to close your eyes and just reflect first on that question. Do you have areas of fear? Like Jonah feared the wrath of the Ninevites, could you fear the wrath of a friend? Are there names coming to mind? Friends that you need to graciously tell your testimony and the story of Jesus. Another way to say it, will, will we repent of our stubbornness and love the hard, the hard to love, even if it comes at personal cost? Who can you share? the message of Jesus with. Another question. When you're confronted with sin, do you tend to get defensive and to double down in pride? Or do you open your arms wide to God in humility 
and say, not my will, but yours be done. We're about to go into a time of response and really just repentance. The invitation of the book of Jonah is to look inward at our hearts and to say, does my heart align with God's heart? And here's the beautiful message of scripture. God is attracted to repentance. Repent is the most beautiful word in all of scripture. It means to turn from our ways and to walk in the ways of God. We pray for us, God, align our vision with yours. God, right now we repent of not going to you and to your word for vision and guidance. And God, we ask that you'd be willing and gracious to humble us. God, that you might use us to bring your gospel to the world. And so God, right now, we readily recognize our sin. I just want you to take a moment and let those things rise to the Lord. If there's anything specific that God hits you with as we're going through the message or the Holy Spirit really highlighted for you, you to bring that to the Lord. Hey guys, thanks for listening in. I hope that this message blessed you and it helps you in your journey with Jesus. If it did, leave a comment, leave a review. Things like that help us spread the message of Jesus. Uh, if you want to connect with us, the best way to do that is to follow us on Instagram at, at NLC Downtown Little Rock to follow along with the life of our church.